Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit it is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see you respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, as a rafting run, the Nantahale is not that difficult of a river. It's got some class twos and, and then one at the end, which is used to be a class four, and then they downgraded it to a class three called Lesser Wesser. And as a guide, you go through the entire rapid, the entire run, knowing that at the end you're going to face Lesser Wesser. And Lesser Wesser is somewhat forgiving. Um, 
there are a few things you have to know about it. For instance, there's a large rock called Billboard Rock where you have to go kiss the rock. In other words, you need to brush it. If you do that, it'll put you in a good place. However, if you miss it, you will get plastered on Billboard Rock. The thing with Lesser Wester is you have to either go in forward or go in backwards, but go in boldly. Don't go in sideways or you're swamped. After hearing that passage read, you may have sensed that we're hitting a Lesser Wester today. Now, I've known this since we decided to spend some time in 1 Peter that this was coming. And why do I call it a rapid? Well, this passage houses concepts that most of us as Westerners in the 21st century may view as profoundly wrong. Slavery and wives under the complete rule of their husbands. And honestly, we have to do something with it. Because slavery today has been overthrown, and at least functionally, most of our marriages don't actually operate that way. So what are we going to do with this passage? I just want to remind us that our job collectively, as it always is when we approach the word, is to read it, we welcome it, we think about it, and then we do the hard work of putting it into practice. And I hope to do that today. The key is humility, to acknowledge that this is the preserved word of God and that Peter is an elder and we're going to sit at his feet and listen to him. I hope today that some of my pondering is respectful and careful. And if you disagree, as no doubt some will, that it will guide you to ponder it better yourself. So together, as we hit lesser wesser, we're going to try to do so forward or backwards, but we're just going to go in boldly. And my prayer is that on the other side, we're going to leave aware of how to better love one another and have the fruit of the Spirit. So as we approach this rapid, this is actually a part of the whole passage. And I kind of want to spend just like two minutes getting us oriented at what comes before the passage about slaves, wives, and husbands. So the two-minute version. First of all, verses 11 and 12 gives us basically what we could call lifestyle evangelism. We are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles, so the Gentiles would be the uh, unbelieving people of the time, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are supposed to live in such a way that the gospel is attractive. The hope is to live in a way that even... People who do not believe, who are suspicious of you, will have to acknowledge that we had virtue. Peter was very, very concerned that what is at stake, what is at issue, is Jesus, not bad behavior. The hope is when Christ returns, and that's what it means by the day of visitation, that when he returns, some of those unbelievers will have seen your virtue and have come to faith. And at least if they reject it, it's not because of your bad behavior, and it will witness against them. Lifestyle evangelism. Verses 13 through 17 speak of submission to a lawful government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so every government is a human institution, and as such, it will have flaws in it. 
But they do serve a purpose, and Peter mentions a few of them right here. He says that they can punish evil and reward good or praise good. Now, Peter and the recipients of this letter lived under Claudius and Nero. Well, that name may ring a bell to you. Uh, This was before the wide-scale Neronian persecution, but it was still a time that was very hostile to a young religion. Even in that environment, it is God's will that Christians do good and thus put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. But in the face of a powerful government that's very unlikely to change, Christians still can live, as many of them do today in parts of our world. And so, during this time, even in these less ideal situations, Peter says that we are to treat everyone that we meet with dignity, we're to love God's people, we're to revere God, and we're to respect the government. That was a very, very quick summary of the first part of this passage. And so now we're going to hit lesser, lesser. Shifting to slaves, wives, and husbands, starting in verse 18. Before we dive into it, I'd like to think about two questions that I think are going to give us kind of a framework in our pondering. The first question is this. Why is this extended passage about a Greco-Roman household even here? Second, why in this extended passage about slaves, wives, and husbands, is there an extended section about Jesus Christ interrupting the address to slaves? I feel that once we get a good grasp on these two questions, we may be in a little bit better position to understand exactly how to put this revelation of God into practice in our little slice of history. So first, that first question, why is this extended treatment of slavery, or excuse me, households here? Is this an employee handbook? Is it a marriage manual? I don't think so. This is a survival strategy for a young church. You see, every major thinker of the day, and you can name the big ones, Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, these guys wrote extensively about the relationships and what is recognized in that time as the basic unit of the empire, the household. It was the fabric of society. There was such a high level of interest in it because it reflects that the household was viewed as essential to the empire's health. And so the biblical writers, Peter here and Paul in Ephesians 5, also write of the household to instruct these mostly non-Jewish Gentile believers how they are supposed to live in the type of empire that has the household as its basic building block. To avoid it would have been absolutely disastrous for a young church, and here's why. When a Christian switched their loyalty from the deity Caesar to God, the question arises, and particularly if they're switching to a scorned, crucified God, as the writers of the day called Jesus, the question arises, how can somebody with that kind of split loyalty a loyalty that shifted from Caesar to God, how could that kind of person live responsibly in the empire? How could they live responsibly in the household? Because if they cannot, this new religion needs to be crushed. It would never take root. The amount of writing shows that any newly formed religion had to grapple with the Greco-Roman household concept. So how do the apostles engage with the household? 
Well, we see that they do so by upholding the standard distinctions that are often written about. And so you'll see slave, master, husband, wife, parent, child. But they affirm it. They keep the distinctions, but they never simply affirm it. They never affirm what the contemporaries were writing about it. So as they do affirm that these distinctions exist, they also plant an entirely new motivation and identity within it. And as history shows, this new motivation and identity was so powerful that it eventually overturned the whole system. So to answer the question, why is an extended passage about Greco-Roman households here in our scriptures today, is because it dominated the landscape at that time. Everything social, everything political, and a young Christianity had to reckon with it. As we ponder it, we must do so with an awareness that our political atmosphere and our social atmosphere has changed. So Christianity has firmly taken root. The government is not looking to crush it based on how it supports the social system. And that household code is no longer affirmed as the ruling virtue, but as regressive. So getting from now, from then, is always kind of tricky. But I think that we can start to do so by seeking the transformational truth that Peter has planted within this and applying that truth to our family and social structures as they exist today. That is why it is here. Second, why does an extended passage about Christ interrupt an address to slaves? It was read in your hearing just now. So we're cruising along, he's talking to the first person, the slave group, and all of a sudden you have this extended passage about Christ. Bam, it interrupts it with some serious Christology. Five times in these five verses, Peter quotes or echoes Isaiah 53. I tell you, it deserves its own message. I'd love to get to it on its own sometime. It emphasizes, Isaiah 53, Jesus' response to suffering. And that is what Peter emphasizes here as well. Here's how he did that. Jesus did not commit sin. Second, he did not retaliate. He didn't threaten. Third, he entrusted himself to God. Now, this is a pattern of suffering, of righteous suffering, those three things, not sinning, not retaliating, and trusting God. One of the philosophers of the day, and his name was Seneca, and you're going to hear that I talk a lot more about these philosophers because it's been a while since I've run into a passage that you had to be so aware of what was going on in the background. One of the philosophers of the day, writing in reference to the households, said this, we have to come by the goal of a supreme good to which every one of us must strive and to which all our acts and words may have reference, just as sailors must guide their course according to a certain star. So the philosophers of the day thought that there was this supreme good, this virtue that everybody should pursue. Peter agrees with Seneca that a guiding star is needed. And as those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, chapter 1, verse 3, that guiding star is Jesus Christ. Referring to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Peter holds up Jesus as a model for how to live a dignified life of freedom, even in an oppressive system. The suffering Jesus passage stands in the middle of this household passage as the guiding star, not just for the slave, but for all who profess Christ. 
and identifying with a suffering servant will touch every believing member of the household, both the ones with no or little power, the slave and the wife, as well as the one that has some social advantage, the husband. The order is important as well as the amount that is written. The slave is addressed first of all, not just because the slave was the lowest in that household, but because Peter wanted us to realize that the slave was a model for all Christians. And in chapter 2, verse 16, uh, we, are, we are referred to, every one of us, as servants of God. And so then he moves on to address the wives who had more social standing than finally the husband. And he was addressed with the least words, not because he gets off the hook or gets a free pass, but because his situation was less vulnerable. So let's talk about slaves. Peter uses the word here, household servant. Your translation may say servant, not because they weren't slaves, they were, but because the focus is on a household, so hence a household servant. He has called us all slaves of God in chapter 2, verse 16. And so the fact that he starts off with a slave is a signal that a slave is the major way in which all believers should view themselves as servants of the Most High God. But there's another reason he used the word servant instead of slave. It connects us to the passage that he wants to connect us to, and that's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 11 speaks of the righteous one, my servant. Now, as it said, he's going to go and he's going to connect five different times with that passage. Peter is actually the only place that directly identifies the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, something that many of us who have been Christians for a while just take for granted. The only place in Scripture where it specifically identifies that suffering servant as Jesus. A slave reading this or listening to this would not have missed that Jesus who was a suffering servant like himself, had died by crucifixion, which was known as the slave's death because it was mainly reserved for slaves. Now, perhaps the servant would have wished that the instructions here would have called him to freedom, that would have called him to revolution. More about this in a moment, but Peter does something different. He taught them that they are indeed free, even if that freedom doesn't mean rebellion, even to a harsh master. Their freedom lies in their ability to choose. To choose, not to sin, not to, retrat to retaliate, but to entrust themselves to God. And as they embrace this new identity as a servant of God, not just a slave. His choosing to accept unjust suffering and to be rewarded for it by his true master, did something amazing. It gave this slave dignity and gave and elevated them because now they had agency. They had a choice. They weren't simply helpless. They could actually choose to accept unrighteous suffering and be rewarded with it. He now had an identity, not just a non-person in a household, but a servant of the Most High. This call to unjust suffering is emotional for us because it is a Christian pattern to try to right justice, injustice. So this bothers us. We wonder why Peter, or any writer in the New Testament for that fact, won't fully attack slavery. But by affirming the household structure, they seem to actually affirm it. 
But as Miroslav Volf, who's an authority in culture at Yale in ancient times, writes in a rather dense quote, but I think it's worth us noting, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familiar structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to a crucified Messiah, indeed the worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts the politics of dominion at its very core. You see, Peter was a realist. His job was to equip believers for the situation that they were in, not the one that Westerners 2,000 years later should think they should be in. Peter didn't hold out to the members of his household the hope of a revolution. The pages of history are littered with those who tried that kind of insurrection against the Greco-Roman Empire. No, Peter continued to knead in the leaven, calling believers to transformation. They know that as Christ demonstrated, unjust suffering can break the world's ways and even bring some to salvation. And in this, they share Jesus' vision of how the kingdom would work. Jesus likened it to a mustard seed, something that started extremely small, but as it grew into a large bush would eventually bring safety to multitudes. God could have fixed the fall of man and women in 10 minutes, but he didn't. He chose millennia. And that is his prerogative as king. The slow-moving nature of the kingdom moving in does not remove the Christian ideal of fighting for justice. But to quote commentator Karen Jobes, the power of this passage is the possibility of transformation regardless of your situation. Wives. Wives receive the same instruction. You'll see that the verse starts out with, likewise. The motivation of their submission is the same as he gave to the slave, reverence for God and identifying with a suffering servant. In the current society of the day, it was expected that a wife would have no friends of her own and that she would worship her husband's gods. And so the very fact that she was identifying with this crucified God was a problem and set her up for antagonism. Her faith would be seen as bringing in disorder, not just to her house, but to society at large. The failure to worship her husband's gods would be an act of rebellion, opening her up for embarrassment, excuse me, him up for embarrassment, loss of social standing, loss of opportunity. Her desire to go out and worship with other believers would run exactly counter to the the fact she was supposed to have basically his same friend group. It would bring her into her own sphere of friends other than his. Peter does not address those issues. Instead, he instructs her to submit. She is to work this out with her husband. Now, we may think, because we don't actually know much about that culture, that that would be a recipe for disaster and think that such a working out with her husband would never work out. However, what we, despite what we tend to think, Greco-Roman husbands were encouraged to know their wives and to love them and to instruct them. What this did was it forced him to engage with her and gave the possibility that he would interact with this new way. And as he engaged with her, he couldn't fail to notice a couple of different things. Number one, her submission and her quiet spirit. 
So far, so good, because the current literature actually said that she was to do that. So there's nothing he could say that was wrong about that. But as he looked at it a little bit closer, he would notice something else, her empowerment. An apostle of Jesus Christ was addressing his slave and his wife, normally something only he was allowed to do. The fact that this instruction was given directly to, directly to the slave and directly to the wife had big implications. This was very subversive. It assumed in them a capacity for moral thought and moral action. It was acknowledging them as free moral agents independent of him. Slaves were denied this agency outright. They were non-persons. And wives were supposed to have that kind of learning mediated to them by their husbands. Now the genius of this strategy is that the head of the house couldn't fault the instruction itself to be submissive. But only the most perceptive would realize the far-reaching implications of aligning in this new identity with a suffering servant. The result of this is the potential for transformation. First of all, for those without power, so the slave and the wife, all of a sudden they are given elevation and dignity. The slave and the wife had a new master, and thus they had a new identity. And they were given a choice, agency for the first time. They had a choice to accept unjust suffering, be rewarded for it, and a choice to submit for God's sake. They had a choice like Jesus to not commit sin, to not retaliate, and to trust God. And this gave them unprecedented dignity. But there is another possible result. For the one who had power, the unbelieving householder, there was a silent witness. There was this possibility that he would be won by what has been called her silent witness. The scripture says that he may be won without a word. Which this is also very, very culturally attuned because women were not supposed to instruct their husbands in that time. And so, what this does is protects her because it reinforces the prevailing idea of virtue. She has to clothe herself with inner strength and beauty. By clothing herself with inner strength and beauty, she was once again aligned with something that the philosophers of the day wrote about. It was a virtue of the day. But again, the motivation is flipped. It's not just virtue or some supreme good that she's supposed to do that for. No, the prover- as Proverbs write, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So now, fear of God, not just some generic virtue, becomes her guide. This instruction also removes the possibility of her motives being questioned. The virtue of the day suspected a woman who dressed elaborately and hid behind, their words, cosmetics, as either being deceitful or seductive. It would make sense that if a Christian wife went out, especially if she was going to meet with a circle outside her husband's influence, that she would be dressed modestly. Getting all dolled up to go out could only be misread. And so this protected her. It also identifies her with the holy women of old, especially Sarah. It was also very common in that day for writers to give role models. And so Peter says, here, I'll give you one, Sarah. Genesis 18, verse 12. Now, Sarah was a strong woman. It's rather remarkable that she never actually addresses Abraham as my Lord anywhere in Scripture. The only time she does so is when she refers to him as my master when talking to some angels. 
Also, she's never actually said to obey him, though three times Abraham is said to obey her voice. And actually that fact embarrassed Peter's contemporaries. They tried to find all kinds of ways around it. However, she does submit to an agreement that they had made not for her to reveal that she was his wife when he was visiting a powerful king's court. Apparently she was a very beautiful woman and he was afraid that they would kill him for her. In this situation, by submitting to that agreement, Sarah is put in a frightening and helpless situation though she has shown that she can fend for herself. In this situation, Abraham is very much like this unbelieving master who is walking not in wisdom. And Sarah is put in the position of a believing wife who is in that situation. But because she has trusted God, she's not to give way to fear, to fear anything that is frightening, and in turn bring further hostility and hatred into their home by her actions. When you look at this call to suffer like the suffering servant, plus this admonition for a wife to be subject to the husband, it it actually raises an issue for us. Should a believing woman stay in an abusive situation? I believe that there is nothing in this passage that suggests they should. I say this for a couple of reasons. First of all, the type of abuse that this woman may be facing may be verbal, It may be social, but the laws of the day forbid spousal abuse. And so we are not talking about physical abuse. She was not considered property, as many ancient writings attest. Second, today women have places to appeal, and nowhere in scriptures are they forbidden to use them. And third, Peter addresses the husbands in the next phrase and tells them not to physically abuse their wives. So let's speak a little bit about husbands. I want you to note that at the beginning of the verses about husbands, that it also begins with likewise in verse 7. Likewise. That is an intriguing likewise. It was also used of the wives. For the wives, likewise meant like the slave, you likewise submit and likewise identify with the suffering servant. As the nearest referent, the husband's likewise, it could be grammatically possible that it meant the same for the husband, which is intriguing. But in the context, that may not make the most sense. In the household code, there was really no one else for him to submit to. And so in that environment, Peter wouldn't very well write that. Another referent would be chapter 2, verse 17, where all people are told to honor and respect everyone. There's actually no verb in verse 7, and so you have to supply one. It would most likely read, likewise, respect all people living with your wives, etc. No matter what it refers to, this likewise has the effect of reducing the person with advantage to honoring and respecting and raising those that he honors and respects. The instruction is briefest to the husband because he's the one that's in the position of power in that time. But the suffering servant will affect him too as he refrains from sin, doesn't retaliate and trust God. He is trusting God with his position and opportunity. This definitely involves him releasing some of the advantages that he may have claimed. He is told to respect his wife. Why? Because she is a co-heir of the gracious gifts of God. 
I enjoy the bold Andrew, excuse me, not, not Andrew, Eugene Peterson paraphrase in the message. The same goes for you husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. She is your sister in Christ. Live respectfully with her even though she is the weaker vessel. Now, this phrase rubs us wrong, but if we sit with it for a second, I think we can be glad it's there. I reject the possibility that this weakness is mental. Sometimes they only half joke that women are so much smarter than us guys. It certainly isn't capacity for leadership or discernment. Again, history is full of showing that to be false. It is mainly physical and in the first century, social. I believe it is here because Peter is discreetly doing something. He is ruling out the possibility of physical abuse because of man's relative greater strength. His point is she is a precious vessel and deserves gentle treatment. So there we have it, slaves, wives, and husbands. So here we are on the other side of Lesser Wesser. I'm going to give us four points of how this may apply for us today. Number one, we are allowed to reject slavery, even though the New Testament doesn't explicitly do so. A passage like this speaks to the situation that was without necessarily addressing what will be or what should be. It also plants what should be. Because if a believing master and a servant alike are both servants of God, as elsewhere Paul appeals to a Christian slave owner, it isn't a hard jump to make. In the West, many positive strides have been made, largely led by Christians like William Wilberforce, who made exactly that connection. We are the same. Second, today we are blessed with many mechanisms for change, and we should use them unlike those living under an emperor and in a household system. So being a good citizen today, being a virtuous citizen today, means to use the levers for change. So we can work for change in the areas of justice and equity. Another way of saying it is we can throw the bums out. Third, if you're in an abusive situation, the law protects you. You have a way out, and I trust your church will protect you. Where it has failed, as I have witnessed it fail at times, God forgive us. But I want you to know that the heart of this church would be to protect you. Third, we must do the hard work required to bring this passage, a passage like this, into our context. I think you will acknowledge that much has changed since then, and I would argue rightly. Slavery is abolished in the West, and women have full legal status and privileges, thankfully. Since those elements lie behind two-thirds of the household code, it seems wise to be cautious in selectively applying it. We should do all in our power to make sure that the accusations of bad behavior that Peter was so concerned about are not warranted for us today. Obviously, this means that spousal abuse infidelity and neglect have to be opposed and opposed vigorously. This is one of those areas in which our values and the wider society should overlap with ours. Another misuse that we need to weed out 
we, and I'm speaking to us men, must seek to eliminate remaining misuse. This passage has been used to support both slavery and the right of a husband to get his way in the home. I have argued that this is a selective and bad application of this. If necessary, it is right, as the Southern Baptist Convention has done in the past, to repent over a soft stance on the institution of slavery. In a time in which marriage is expected, I think rightly, to be a partnership founded on mutual respect, I believe the groundwork for this is actually laid in this passage. It is deeply unattractive and damaging to the name of Christ for men to demand submission in the home. We have to realize that in doing so, we show more in common with an unbelieving householder than a suffering servant. I truly cannot think of a single situation in which this passage should be wielded against your fellow slaves of God and co-heirs of the grace of life so as to get your way. Next, as we do the hard work of bringing this passage into our context, husbands and wives must enter into the details together, and they should take a few things into consideration. That we are both God's servants, called to emulate a suffering servant. That we are both co-heirs, equals before God. And we need to take into account what does it mean for a man to honor and respect a joint heir of the grace of God. And as you work through these roles, I want us to be sensitive to the possibility that things you assumed were from God may be culturally conditioned. For example, working outside the home, appearing in public unaccompanied, and wearing makeup no longer are even a question to us today. Perhaps there are some other things that we assume that we should discuss. Peter assumed that husbands and wives would work through her new faith. As believing husbands and wives work through these things, it's wise to remember that Peter refrained from spelling things out. And so, most likely, no man from the pulpit, no author, should tell you what this looks like in your marriage. Final application. Apply the pattern of the suffering servant to your most difficult situation, that situation that you can't seem to get out of. A couple years ago, I had a friend here that was provided a work visa and uh, worked here in the States, and he was promised his green card. They said, we'll get you your green card by his company. But then they began to slow walk it. No matter what he did, they would always bump it because of the cost, because of this, because of that. Finally, when he began to have issues with management, uh, he really had no options. If he quit his job, he would have to leave the country in 30 days if he didn't get another job. This was a tight spot. This was a difficult situation. Now, he may have had more choices than a slave in our passage, but when he found himself trapped, he had to say, like, I can't get out of this right now. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation that you cannot get out of? Well, you have a choice, like Jesus, to not commit sin as you engage, to not retaliate with threats, and to trust God. There are those in very difficult, prolonged, but obviously God-given situations that this also applies to. Some of you are caregivers where you are caring for somebody and you really are in that situation. You cannot get out of it at this time. Some of you may have a, a spouse who is unable to uphold their part of the daily grind because of health issues. You may be in a socioeconomic situation that you were born into and that you have never been able to break out of. 
you may be in a difficult and exhausting stage of life. I think, for instance, of moms with preschoolers, where it just feels like there's no, there's no way out. They control every aspect of my life. Well, the suffering servant will meet you there. There is a possibility of transformation regardless of your situation. And so here we are on the other side of the rapid. I trust we uh, went forward or backwards, but not sideways. And what we have seen is that the household code is the situation in which was displayed the transformative power available to those of us who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus becomes our guiding star. So I want to put one thing for you to consider as we close. By following the steps of the suffering servant, we are dignified and empowered even in our most difficult situation. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word today. We've read difficult things. We've read things that fur our brows that we don't know exactly what to make of. But I also feel like we are welcoming your word, that we want to hear it, that we believe that in it is the power to transform. And so I pray today that you would go with your people and that as they ponder, maybe with maybe a little new eyes, this, that you would give them insight and wisdom. And I pray each of us, as we work hard to put this into practice, we know that your Holy Spirit is with us. And so we ask that he would guide us. And Father, I pray all this so that the end result would be that we love better, that we love harder, that we do not bring bad reflections on your name. And so I pray that all of us would love each other better and that the fruit of the Spirit would be more evident because of our time today. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.